This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Cthulhu Confidential. Chris Spivey. How to Make a Damn Sandwich. And The Lions of Savo. Last April, the Secret Masters at Atlas Games kickstarted a new edition of Unknown Armies. It's the legendary occult RPG where horribly broken people conspire to fix the world. Now, the books are at press and digital rewards are starting to land with Kickstarter backers. But not everyone was conscious in April for this dramatic shift in the invisible clergy. Maybe you were asleep, unaware of the occult underground. Maybe you were just doing something else in April. It matters not! You can still pre-order everything offered in Unlock during the Kickstarter and get it all as soon as it's available. From the deluxe edition, whose three volumes are wrapped with a slipcase that unfolds into a GM screen... To PDF, EPUB, and Moby Digital Editions, not to mention three all-new soundtrack cycles composed especially for this project. Pre-order at atlas-games.com backslash UA3 pre-order. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's good to be awake. We pull open the closet door and are immediately met with a rain of trilbies, fedoras, homburgs, derbies, and Russian fur hats because we are among our many hats. And among Robin's specifically many hats, we find a brand new book, Cthulhu Confidential. Robin, perhaps you could open that book metaphorically, or even really, and tell us what we might find therein. So, uh, Cthulhu Confidential is the first book in uh, Pelgrane's new gumshoe one-to-one line, and uh, I created one of the three characters that appears in it, and uh, the setting and scenario that goes with that, but I also uh, designed the gumshoe one-to-one rules. You will recognize it if you know gumshoe, but you will also see that a lot of the uh, structures are actually quite different, because it turns out that play for one GM and one player is quite different, and that the assumptions baked into uh, regular gumshoe in particular are often all about managing a, a group of players and making sure that everybody has something to do and doesn't step on each other's toes, and that, for example, the way that general abilities are handled in regular gumshoe, where you get a pool of points and that uh, for each ability, and that enables you to kind of decide uh, when you get to shine and when you might not uh, succeed are not really applicable to a single-player game. Uh, we've had a lot of sort of solo games in the past. Often the tutorials for some uh, earlier games are uh, solo games, but it turns out that I think really a lot of the things that, that are intrinsic to multiplayer are uh, not relevant or sort of aside the point for... Uh, one-person, one-GM-style uh, play. Uh, for example, in a game where you have multiple characters, if one of them bites the dust midway through, well, that's something that can happen in story. But in a game where there's only one protagonist, uh, the character if the character dies a third of the way through and then it's just over anticlimactically, well, that's no good. So hit points are not a thing in Gumshoe 1 to 1. You instead accumulate problem cards, and some of those problem cards may imply that uh, you are going to die at the end of the story if you don't do something to rectify them. Or because this is a Lovecraftian horror game, you could lose your mind at the end of the uh, scenario. But in either case, you get to resolve the mystery, and then whatever problem cards you have left in your hand, if they are significantly terrible can then lead to a grim coda, and that grim coda can include uh, death or insanity. So mechanically, that's very much different from uh, a series of hit points that you can run out of, or health points, as it is in Gumshoe, that you can uh, be reduced to a big negative number and then uh, die midway through. Because, like I said, unsatisfying if you die partway through without solving anything. 
So I believe that in uh, gaming it out, in playtesting and designing, you found that the lack of uh, worry about your own death is more than made up for by the increased intensity of one-to-one play, right? Because you've only got one player and one GM, and I've done my share of one-on-one gaming back when I was younger, and you're always on stage and you always have to be doing something, and the... uh the immersion becomes stronger, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody, all the playtest groups and the various playtests that I ran myself, the one comment that we heard uh, again and again, I think basically every single time, is that this is a much more intense experience than people are used to because uh, you're in character the whole time. You don't have cause to break character very much. You, and the, the tension-relieving... Uh, mechanisms that you have if you're a group of players hanging out together, especially in a room where you stop and commits and make pop culture references and joke with each other, those uh, go at the window. So in response to playtest material, I wound up writing guidance on how to prepare people for how intense it is and uh, to be ready for that and expect that. And I think it's kind of questionable even how much tension we actually get in regular multiplayer from the prospect of uh, player character death but here it's just the fact that you have to figure stuff out and uh, for example in the uh, scenario that i wrote uh, it's set in uh, 1937 la which as we've as we've mentioned previously turns out to have all sorts of cool occult psychogeography that makes it a great uh, fit for uh, cthulhu play Uh, but you get to meet uh, Mickey Cohen, who was the longtime uh, gang boss in L.A., very early in his career when he's basically just a young, thuggish uh, bodyguard slash enforcer for Bugsy Siegel. Right, yeah. Or Ben Siegel, as you have to make sure you call him if you're talking to his face. And uh, running the uh, scenario multiple times, one of the key things is that uh, whatever Lovecraftian monster is involved in the scenario... People were really, really afraid of Mickey Cohen, <laughs> a, a real monster who happens to have a very evocative mugshot, and uh, and definitely that sort of shaped the way that people investigate the case and the number of risks that they take, and just the, you know any situation that you go into when you are the only character there, uh, you know if you flub an interview with a witness in standard gumshoe, well there's another three or four other players who, uh, whose characters somewhat oddly are all there at once asking questions, uh, which is just sort of a conceit that you have to accept with a multiplayer investigative game. But there you're on your own. So if you forget to ask anything, you've forgotten to ask it. If you decide to you know, that you're a little afraid of the person that you're dealing with and you go in uh, with a fake cover story, you might get in partway through and realize, oh, wait a minute, with this story, I can't actually ask questions I really need to ask in order to uh, w- uh, get what I need to know without blowing this this cover story that I've established. And so part of the uh, playtest response was also creating a little crib sheet for people on how to be a good investigator. And that's one of the points that it makes is that posing as somebody else while asking questions can be useful. And it's something you do see in uh, mysteries all the time, but you have to be aware when you're going in to pick a pretext that will allow you to ask all the questions you want to ask, or you'll wind up uh, just sort of stuck partway through the interview. And another of the points is just, you have to talk to bad, scary people, especially in a, in a noirish world, because that's the theme that connects all three of the settings is that they're all thirties. Uh, and in one case, a wartime uh, film noir settings where, uh, you know, it's one flavor of darkness layered in with yet another uh, flavor of darkness. The uh, notion of uh, the crib sheet for keeping track of things brings up another advantage that you have when you're a multiplayer group, which is that, you know, there's lots of minds at work on the problem and lots of, you know, wild scenarios and, and different strategies can be flung out. You've got more creativity going on. Does the single player, uh, what what do they have in, in uh, Cthulhu Confidential to keep them moving forward as rapidly as a group of players that is actually moving forward moves forward? Um, well, actually, I, I find that the single play of uh, one-to-one, that they tend to move forward more than a multi-group because there's no point where you stop to have an argument with all of the other players over what you should do next. That the player will, uh, sometimes prompted if necessary by the GM, will sort of run down their options. 
but then there's no bit where, uh, you know, if you have a choice between uh, going down to the docks to uh, look for uh, traces of deep one activity or going to talk to the guy who knows all of the secrets of uh, the LA Times, you don't have a 15-minute discussion over which one of those things you should do. And you uh, you just, okay, there's this and that, I guess I'll do that. And so the resulting play feels more like a, a mystery novel being played out because you don't have all of those uh, weirdo distractions or you don't have the 10-minute discussion where if the GM isn't quick to jump on, you know, well, how do we get back in touch with each other after we split up? And you just, well, there's no splitting up. That doesn't uh, happen. It's not a thing. And so, actually, the the forward momentum is more in this format, uh, but it's often a matter of the player having to kind of go through the list of open leads and deciding which one there are. Uh, often, if the lead is Mickey Cohen, they will forget it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, there is a, uh, a tool of uh, the relationship maps in the various uh, scenarios where you can see who you've heard of but haven't gone to, uh, to speak to yet. And that can be a, another good tool in keeping track of uh, what you don't know yet. And also, uh, you tend to engage in less speculation, that it's often a, uh, a bit of a, a rocky spot in a gumshoe adventure where uh, some players would rather throw out a whole bunch of weirdo speculations as to what is going on than to actually gather the facts that they need to figure out what to do. And I think part of that is just that they are uh, nervous about interviewing all of these imaginary characters played by the GM, but you just don't have the length of time to bounce off of one another in order to uh, get that happening. That you, you know, again, there's no point doing a bunch of idle speculations to procrastinate. You, you got to uh, move on. Another thing I should mention is that the uh, the way the general abilities work in one to one is quite different. That there's a challenge system. You have uh, one or two dice in any given ability, so the, the point spends on general abilities is not a thing in one-to-one. -one. Uh, but what you have is uh, uh, you can roll one die and then see how well you've done. You, If you have another die in the ability, you can add it and see how well you've done. Or you can take on an extra problem, uh, one of those problem cards, and uh, that will give you another die that you can roll, and you're adding the total as you go. And what you're trying to do, you uh, may get a setback result, uh, that's where something bad happens, maybe something bad in the storyline, or you just might get saddled with another problem card. The middle range is a hold, which is sometimes that you're no worse off than you were before, but no better off. Or sometimes you are better off, but you don't get a big advantage. And then the top result is an advance, and that will either give you a uh, better result than the hold in the storyline, or you'll get an edge card, which is the positive counterpart, of the uh, problem cards. And so you can use those for uh, various benefits in the story or just for mechanical benefits, like to get an extra die on a, uh, another challenge coming up. So let's move away a little bit from the uh, system and talk a little bit about the setting, which is, of course, the noir universe uh, with made extra bleak, even bleaker, even more horrible by the addition of Lovecraft. Now, Obviously, that looks like one of those sort of not even peanut butter and chocolate, just peanut butter and jelly, things that go together completely naturally. Were, were there uh, finicky Phillips that you had to make sure that the noir world and the Lovecraft world would, would stay in harness? Or was it just a matter of, uh, you know, falling downstairs? Surprisingly, the history of uh, L.A. is the one that I can speak to because that's the section that I did. Surprisingly, it's already all there. <laughs> Or perhaps not so surprisingly, since yeah, we've been doing this for me. a while. So, for example, in the in the 20s, L.A. was the boomingest of boom towns. And uh, sort of people went there from all over the U.S., particularly from the Midwest, uh, seeking something and seeking uh, not just uh, wealth and advantage and the uh, 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 newfound glamour of this uh, world where the movie industry was springing up, but they also found themselves seeking spiritual answers. And so uh, 30s LA turns out to be a ground zero for a whole lot of crazy cults. And of course, all you have to do is take a historical cult and sort of file off the uh, the details and then, uh, you know, add some uh, mythos to it. So 
you know, the mo very most famous uh, one of those is you don't think of her as a cult because she's a Christian evangelical, but a Amy Semple McPherson, for example. Right. And we can yeah. maybe do a, a segment on her uh, later. She, well, she's, um, she's an adventure waiting to happen. So she famously uh, disappears and then uh, shows up again. And uh, it turns out that she showed up in Arizona, uh, not far from uh, from Roswell. And there might be a Mego influence going on there. And there's a connection to the discovery of uh, Pluto or Yugoth, of course, as we know it. There's uh, Manly Palmer Hall, who we've discussed on the show. His uh, headquarters were uh, in uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, we've got Crowley in activity. There's uh, uh, a a Phelamite uh, temple there, which has not yet been taken over by uh, Jack Parsons, uh, but is about to be. And there's all sorts of uh, connections there. There's uh, Guy Ballard of the I Am Activity. The uh, a very peculiar uh, cult that actually still continues to this day. There's a new I Am temple within walking distance of my house. And, of course, there's a big sort of psychogeography uh, uh, aspect to it as well, where uh, there's a lot of suspicious redevelopment, uh, which is uh, a theme, of course, of a lot of uh, noir and also indicates that uh, somebody just might be trying to control the ley lines of Los Angeles. And uh, that's Chinatown with ley lines. Chinatown with ley lines, exactly. And uh, ch the real Chinatown was uh, destroyed and then recreated by the uh, publisher of the uh, of the L.A. Times, who was also a uh, a major uh, real estate magnate and had his fingers in all of the pies. So he's obviously a sort of a a spidery figure at the center of the web that is Los Angeles, and you get to interact with him in one of the follow up adventures that will be coming out. Uh, I think they're coming out first on PDF, and then they'll be collected uh, in book form. So uh, one of the other things about one-to-one -one is that it needs to have really solid adventures, whether those are ones that you write yourself or ones that you get from Pelgrane, because as a GM, you have a lot less time to improvise and to figure out what to do, uh, because right. uh, you're, you are also on stage all the time. You don't get that uh, 15 minutes of the players discussing what might be happening, and then you you know, pick the coolest one and add a twist to it. There's, uh, you can improvise, uh, certainly, but it's uh, challenging, not just because you need to have uh, problem and edge cards all ready to go, uh, but you uh, just don't have the time, really, to think of uh, big new directions for the story to go in. So, And it's also harder to just throw in a fight scene because you might wind up crippling the only investigator and leave and throwing him out of the adventure for, you know, a week and a half or whatever. Well, you cleverly don't do that. <laughs> right. So you, yeah. so you uh, create the problem cards so that the uh, character can always go on. And so if you get into a, a gratuitous fight, you can either just say, oh, well, you know, if you lose, you get a black eye and it just makes it harder to uh, talk to people and get their respect. Or you can, oh, well, you were stabbed, but the... Uh, the stab wound, you have to go and deal with it. And then, uh, so you actually have kind of more control over those annoying penalties to the characters that wind up sort of penalizing the story because you can write the challenges in such a way that you make sure that nothing uh, dumb happens that stops the story dead. And, and, and again, uh, uh, that's true to the hard boiled mythos in that, uh, the, you know, the Sam Spade in theory should be in the hospital a few times. Yes. But nope, he just sort of picks himself up, shakes off the concussion, and goes back to Sam Spaden around. Yes, uh, if there's any genre that takes uh, concussions lightly, <laughs> it's the yeah. hard-boiled uh, genre, I guess. Or stabbings or gunshots or, or anything. Yeah. Fortunately, it was through and through, said someone who had never been shot. Yeah. <laughs> and it also uh, gives you control, too, over the issue of, well, what if I just kill Bugsy Siegel? Well, you can write the challenge so that the... A really successful result is something other than succeeding in killing Bugsy Siegel. So right. you still get a that feeling of triumph, a... but you don't necessarily have the control over what exactly happens the way you do in a more loosey-goosey system. So it has uh, that sort of built-in kind of uh, control uh, setup. Well, at this point, I think I've talked about uh, Cthulhu Confidential long enough, but we happen to have an interview queued up where Chris Spivey, who, uh, who created Langston Wright, who's the uh, African-American... Uh, science uh, investigator in wartime Washington, D.C. And uh, uh, let's uh, head on over uh, through a commercial. And then on the other side, we'll uh, talk uh, with Chris and he'll spill a few more beans on Cthulhu Confidential and maybe a few other projects as well.
kids? Want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. Okay, welcome to yet another edition of Ken and Robin Talk to Somebody Else. So we're once more rocketing back in time to uh, our Gen Con hotel room with our big fans outside the window, and we are talking to Chris Spivey. Hey, Chris. Hello. Uh, So, Chris, you are uh, breaking in as a uh, tabletop role-playing writer. Uh, We are often asked, how do you break in these days? And we both have really good advice for doing it in 1992. Yes, absolutely. I think that if you are in 1992... You can't hear this podcast because I don't think this compression system has even been invented. I don't think there's MP3s yet, are there? Uh, I, I don't know. Well, you, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you're getting it off a satellite. Off a satellite. It's being bounced to you from some sort of weird numbers station. There's right. a hilarious conspiracy that's right. going to happen. And we could tell you all the things you need to do to prevent a certain presidential candidate from rising. But that would alter the time stream. Uh, more importantly, <laughs> would take up all of Chris's time. Which, so. God forbid. <laughs> right. Uh, but this is the year of our Lord 2016, a magical future where everything is beautiful and pear blossoms frolic down from the skies. David Bowie and Prince are happy and alive and in good health. Chris, in this world of perfection and, and, and beauty, how do you uh, get into the tabletop role-playing industry? And more to the point, why would a fellow like yourself, who obviously has a great deal going on for him personally and professionally, want to get into the tabletop role-playing industry? It's not actually sarcastic, it just sounds that way. I got into it because I wanted to change an industry that meant a lot to me growing up. I grew up playing games. I started with the Red Box and quickly discovered Cthulhu, and that sort of embraced me in a way I won't describe on your podcast. <laughs> right, right. Um, We've all been there. But how I actually got into it, I went to my first Gen Con a number of years ago, and I went from booth to booth trying to get a feel for everyone. And then I lucked into meeting Robin, and I told Robin this crazy idea about wanting to write games that had more diversity and inclusion, so that, for instance, when my daughter starts role-playing, she won't have to go through what I went through. And for some reason, he listened to me. It could have been I offered coffee or money. I can't remember which one. Both work, but Robin is also a sensitive Canadian. Yes. So what did you go through that you don't want your daughter to go through? For me, it was a lot of showing up at tables and having people stare at me, uh, asking me if I've ever gamed before, even if I'm the game master. My... <laughs> well, we've all been in that game. <laughs> really, more people should ask that question regardless of the, of the phenotype of the JM. Yeah, right. My my first Gen Con, I came, I set up, I had the table and everything, had the gym screen, I'm standing behind the gym screen, a group of people plop down in front of me and look at me and say, do you know when the gym is showing up? Oh my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they don't have valets at Gen Con. <laughs> yes. In our surprise, you're hearing older white guy privilege. Yes. Um, so, uh, you want to write things that reflect uh, your experience and that your daughter will feel reflects her experience. So, how does that... Uh, additional agenda affect how you go about seeking role-playing gigs? Part of it's whenever I'm presenting something, I always have a level of, I hate to say realism, but realism in whatever I'm writing. And that's not always welcomed when I send different pieces into different groups. And I have to decide if I want to write something for someone that doesn't necessarily want to reflect what I'm trying to do. So does that mean that your predilection then is to write things that are set on Earth or have a connection to the actual lived experience of Earth history as opposed to 
you know, Eberron or something, where it's like, you know, I'm going to talk about the lived experience of being a Warforged, which is <laughs> nonsense, because who cares? Um, yes, that and sci-fi, because sci-fi yeah. is the greatest genre for writing, in my opinion. Right. Okay, and uh, you would consider Lovecraft then a science fiction author, first and foremost? Or yes. Yeah, okay, that's fair. It's also legitimate. Right, so I guess this kind of moves uh, us into uh, what you are... Uh, doing for uh, Cthulhu Confidential. You were one of the three writers, uh, including myself and Ruth Tillman, on the original uh, uh, launch gumshoe one-to-one project, which is called Cthulhu Confidential, and it's a series of not just uh, Cthulhu adventures, but they're all noir adventures. And one of the challenges with gumshoe one-to-one is we can often kind of escape the uh, issue in role playing because you just decide who your character is. But in uh, one-to-one, you are given a character to play, and the character is matched to that experience. So that the character that I wrote, Dex Raymond, is basically your default white guy, LA, film noir, hard-boiled detective. But there are things that he can do that a black character couldn't do for like navigate LA because LA was was a Jim Crow town in 37 so we came to you and asked you to uh, create another character that people can play and tell us about him so I created Langton Wright who's a World War II vet that's sent back home from a war injury that's more scientist actually than PI and he sort of gets dragged into PI cases along the way sort of a mix of a a Walter Mosley with a little scientist bent to it right and it was interesting to actually have to write that in D.C. because I added it the extra level of being an actual soldier, wanting to be fighting in the front lines with everyone else, while a lot of your own people have been denied that right. Right. And you've done it, but you can't do it, so you're trapped here, mm-hmm. trying to make a difference, and then dealing with all the added pressure of being a uh, black male in America. And especially in the similarly Jim Crow D.C. of the 1940s. Right. True. But D.C. was also pretty much a catalyst point with all the difference. Well, almost, I'm not going to say the birthplace of the civil rights movement, but a lot of the different laws that were coming out of the time were promoted by people actively working in D.C. Right, yeah. Well, that's because that's where they keep the government. Yeah. <laughs> Such as it was. So, uh, so Langston Wright is, per- is pursuing the mythos in the 1940s in Washington, D.C. Uh, is there a quality of mythos writing that, since Lovecraft famously... Uh, was uh, averse to not just black protagonists, but black, period? Is there a quality that you have to bring to Lovecraft, or is there enough in cosmic horror and scientific nihilism that you find that works with Langston? That what, How much do you rotate Lovecraft, and how much of it is just turning yourself to face the part of his mythos that is specifically relevant to Langston Wright? It's very hard. The thing is, reading Lovecraft, Lovecraft had a lot of great ideas. Yes. And you have to distill those down and figure out what works best for what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. For me, the very concept of being oppressed by things are always outside of your control that you can never fully comprehend is close to the African-American experience. Right. It's more lived. Right. And that made it relatively easy to add that horror to that. Mm -hmm. So, besides buttonholing a Canadian... Do you have any other advice for, in 2016, uh, as, a, as a black author, or as a young author, or as a first-time author, that's relevant to people who might be listening and say, gosh, I too have more spare time and fun than I know what to do with. I'd like to spend it endlessly researching minutia of Washington, D.C. geography. <laughs> Sorry. What I will actually use my last few minutes to promote Metatopia. If you're oh, looking you to break go. into the industry, Absolutely. go to Metatopia. You'll meet great people. You will be able to deal with other like-minded people. And it's just amazing. Yes, uh, it is. It, Metatopia is magnificent. I have talked about it before on the cast. I will talk about it again on the cast. Because this may even be airing around Metatopia time. Who can say? Who can say? Uh, to move back to Langston for a sec... Uh, we uh, run across an issue in representation and representing oppression because uh, there's a divide between do you want to depict the truth and do you want to vicariously experience the truth through your role-playing character? And the thing about, uh, I think a lot of arguments about representation are made assuming an aspirational setting like a F-20 role-playing game or a future space opera game when there's no reason to have anybody confront any of that stuff or 
if you do, you confront it in the form of a guy with a one white side face, one black side face, and the other guy shows up and you uh, confront it in that uh, a- angle. But uh, highly chiaroscuro fashion. <laughs> yes. Uh, but in uh, the real 1940s, there's a scene where Langston might be pulled over by the police. So what are, what are the tension wires in dealing with that scene, given that different people will want to experience that in different ways? So that came up relatively early in the writing process when I was working with Simon. And he and I came up... I'm not going to... It's almost sort of a mechanic. So there's a... There's a built-in way in which it describes different approaches that you can take to deal with that, depending on the level of realism that you want to have in your game. And each one gets a little bit more graphic, and it allows players to decide what they're comfortable with. But at the same time, lets me write to the actual situation and feel comfortable presenting this to other people. Right. Because neither Lovecraft nor Noir are aspirational, that the heroes get uh, the crap kicked out of them very frequently, but it's different if it's a it, the Dex Raymond character getting the crap kicked out of him that doesn't have the weight of history on it the way that if something bad happens to, to Langston um, and so what is your preference at the at the table when you're running do you want to confront this material or do you want to confront it at a remove or do you want to not go there at all I would like to confront it head-on role-playing gives us a chance to better understand other people's experiences and as long as you can approach it in that manner and still be respectful it gives you the opportunity to fully well to partially realize what other people might have gone through and broaden your own horizons I know some of the feedback I got did not necessarily agree with the approach I wanted to take well that's pretty much true with all art yes yeah well, and especially role-playing, yeah, right. different people come at it different ways. And the and that's one of the challenges also of something like one-to-one, where you really are being asked to play one character. Yeah, It's different in, uh, you know, if I'm writing something, which I have set in the 30s, and I have my box about race in Trail of Cthulhu, but there's no mechanic that says players are going to be playing uh, black Mississippians uh, going up against the yig-worshipping Ku Klux Klan, they're like, no, we're playing neurasthenic white guys from Rhode Island, just like Lovecraft. And there you can do that. But if you are being asked to play Langston, then that's a bigger ask, I think. And it's it's a bigger ask in a lot of ways than just being asked to play a Dex Raymond that you didn't roll up, right? Yeah. Um, and so the bigness of that ask, I think, makes the, the, the possible story more ambitious because it's a, you know, a bigger leap that you're taking to get into it. And then, is there, a, uh, is there a point at which you would say, we've asked enough on Langston, uh, we're going to cut him a break here or there, or is the artistic point to sort of bring everything to the full-on tragic breaking point and say, here's the, the lived truth and the Lovecraftian truth overlapping you know, walk into the shotgun barrel. How, how much of that are you thinking about wrestling with, dealing with? And when you imagine, you know, a nation of doughy white kids playing the game, do you think that they're going to say, awesome? Or do you think they're going to say, whoa, I didn't sign up for this? They would likely <laughs> say, I didn't sign up for this. So my vision is to take it maybe three quarters of the way there. Right. Enough that you can walk the path and decide how much longer you want to go. But as long as you're trying to do it, that is taking steps in the right direction. That means, like, when you go off and you can tell someone else that you meet it, like Jim Connors from the convention, you know what, I played this one-to-one thing, this guy was playing this African-American detective, it was a lot of pressure, I don't really think it was for me, but you've talked to the people about it, and that might make someone else go, hmm, yeah, I hadn't heard of that before, and then go and try it. And that's another thing about one-to-one, is just the experience is really intense, because you're the only player and you don't uh, have other people to bounce off of, and it feels more like a, a noir mystery and so once you add this other layer on of uh, you know doubly being a, a black man in Washington in the 40s um, it's extra tough Washington in the 40s what cool weird supernatural stuff did you find my, my favorite one is sad as it sounds is going to be the demon cat that sort of uh, haunts a monument that shows up roughly whenever something awful is going to happen it happened around the assassination of Lincoln and different things like that it's just a little thing, but it's very cool to have in there. It's an omen. Yeah, I, I, I hear the demon cat has been hanging around quite a lot this year. <laughs> demon cat is like, seriously, I really need to get some sleep. Uh, so anything you'd like to add or plug before we uh, head on out of this segment? 
expect to see Harlem Unbound, a darker hue-based game using the uh, gumshoe system, probably on Kickstarter October, November. Okay. There you go. And so uh, Darker Hue is your It's my own studio. personal company that I started to sort of run with the idea of diversity in gaming before I actually had a chance to meet Robin and the different Pelgrane crew. And Harlem Unbound will be a... Uh, what, what's the, what's the, the two-minute pitch or the two-second pitch, the elevator pitch? Lovecraftian horror set in 1920s Harlem. Okay, there you go. That was the pitch. Go out. There you go. Back it. And uh, and if this has come out after the Kickstarter, congratulations for being smart enough to, to have back backed it through the Kickstarter. <laughs> What happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Scott Herring. Timothy Corum. Todd McGowan. Tony Camp. And Trung Bui. The multigrain bread, the Dijon mustard, and your choice of uh, delicious luncheon meats suggests that we are once more in the food hut. And this time, uh, Ken, you have uh, uh, a strong desire to talk about a question that is close to your heart, which is people's inability to make a damn sandwich. That is true. That is correct. Now, we might segue into other food rants. Uh, if you don't have 15 minutes of sandwich complaints, but you certainly managed to come up with at least 12 minutes on the blueberry. So, Ken, mm-hmm. w- what is the problem with people's sandwich making? Well, I would like to know that. I would like to know what is the problem <laughs> with people's sandwich making, Robin, because apparently it's like nuclear physics or something to make a damn sandwich correctly. Whereas two minutes of observation tells you that the whole point of the sandwich is the meat. The meat is the reason for the sandwich. Right. And again, we're talking about your standard sandwiches, but me no grilled cheese. If you can't make a grilled cheese, you have bigger problems than this podcast can fix. But the meat is the point of the sandwich. So put the condiments next to the meat. The condiments exist to flavor the sandwich, put the condiments next to the meat, not next to the cheese. Because if you put the condiments next to the cheese, then you've created a seal that pastes the cheese to the bread, and now you've undone the whole point of the sandwich was to create a solid mass of flavor so condiments next to meat condiments not next to cheese cheese not next to bread these are three basic principles that can be expanded out to the basic sandwich architecture 101 which would be and for those of you following at home perhaps you'll be startled certainly you'll be startled if you work at a commercial establishment that ostensibly makes sandwiches for a living bread condiment meat cheese meat then once you've gotten to the top of that, then you can start adding your, your kickers, right? So that might be bacon. It might be another kind of meat. It might be, <laughs> yes. uh, you add your meat the avocado. Your meat. It might be any number of other things. Then your veggies, your, your, uh, lettuce and tomato. Then your oil or whatever it is might be mayo again, might be the condiment a second time. Then the bread. That's a sandwich. A sandwich is a dimensional creature. It's not just a list of ingredients. 
And once you've established that, once you've established your ability to make that, then you can come back to me and say, but what about a ham, brie, and jelly sandwich, Ken? The jelly has to go next to the brie because the taste contrast is the point of that sandwich. And I say, fine, Picasso doesn't follow the laws of archi- uh, the laws of perspective, but you are not Picasso yet because you have not made a successful ham and cheese. So basically what you're saying is don't let the condiment and the cheese touch each other. Right. The condiment and the cheese generally should not touch each other because the cheese exists to modulate the meat by providing a different type, ideally a different type of fat, different type of flavor, different type of texture, and a contrasting or complementary flavor profile. The cheese and the meat are the, are the people who have to get along here. The condiment exists to add flavor to the whole process, which it can only do if it touches the meat, not the cheese. See previous discussion about pasting the cheese to the bread. And ruining everything. Now, is the problem, is it a texture problem, that the, the pasting that you refer to? Or is it that the cheese must not be trammeled by uh, mustard or mayo? It is a, it's, a, it's a texture problem, first of all. And the other problem that it creates is that you then isolate the flavor of the condiment under this uh, blanketing insulation of cheese, and it doesn't get onto the meat the way that it's supposed to. The condiment is there. If you think about it, the mustard being your, your, your stalwart standard condiment, Mustard exists to flavor meat. That's the whole reason it exists. You don't, in theory, you could have mustard that exists to flavor the greens, but again, that's what the top half of the bread is for. The mustard exists to flavor the meat, so that means the mustard should go next to the meat. Yes. Now, I have not thought to be enraged by sandwich construction, but certainly I am always annoyed when the uh, condiment is sealed off from the meat by lettuce. You know, mustard and then lettuce and then meat. That's obviously a problem that uh, to everyone but not yeah. yet thought that uh, well the cheese is an even more efficient sealant than lettuce because lettuce is at least uh usually uh wet and so the condiment can sometimes flow around it um every now and again you do get a, a, a like a giant piece of lettuce and someone cheeps out of the condiments and you get that same basic effect when suddenly you're eating mustard lettuce which is generally pointless but often your sandwich will have an oil which is a mayonnaise maybe, or it might be a vinaigrette or something that's on your sandwich. And that's usually pretty good on the le- on the lettuce because it's basically like a salad dressing. So now, is this the only secret to serving you a sandwich, or do you have other advanced sandwich issues? Well, I mean, uh, I- ideally you toast the bread because then the bread becomes structurally able to hold the sandwich. Uh, usually it make- becomes a tastier bread because you've added heat and you've got whatever the bread version of a Maillard reaction is that opens up the flavor of that uh of that grain, just like toasting a spice does. You turn you turn the carbs more into sugars. Exactly, and so you have, um, uh, you know, ideally you've you've toasted the, the the bread, but I don't think the toasting is as crucial necessarily. But you know, do it do it if you can. The the real crucial elements are, uh, like you say, don't get the condiments on the cheese and keep the condiments next to the meat, and you should be able to figure it out. And again, remember that the sandwich is dimensional, so. The place, if meat belongs next to cheese and cheese belongs next to meat, you can make a pocket of meat, cheese, meat, and you've done most of the job of the sandwich already. Now, uh, do you have issues with the overloaded sandwich, the sandwich that is too large to actually get all of the uh, ingredients that you want to have in your mouth at one time into your mouth or that falls apart on the plate? Is this also a problem? Um, it can be a problem, but I'm a, I'm a fan of overloaded flavor profiles anyway, so I'm, I find it hard to hate on a big Dagwood like that. And again, there is a sort of, what do I want to say, childlike glee that comes. There's a place in Chicago called Perry's that does a brisket, tomato, Thousand Island, and uh, sauerkraut or coleslaw. I forget which it is that's that's on it. I think it's sauerkraut uh, sandwich. So it's basically like a, a slightly weird Reuben, but with brisket. And it's the size of a human head. And it's magnificent because when you defeated it, you really know you defeated it. It's a Russian rye, obviously. And again, you couldn't make a sandwich that big without toasting the bread because otherwise it would, in fact, turn the bread into paste the first bite you took of it. You can't have that. So it's really, for me, if the bread and the ingredients are maintaining their integrity, if you, you know, cannot physically crush them down to fit in your mouth, then I guess that's when you... Uh, you know, cut your sandwich. And again, cut your sandwiches side to, uh, corner to corner people. Cutting their crosses for grade schoolers. Let's just, let's grow up. Then you can usually poke that little pointy part into your mouth and get a good start on it. That helps solve the problem. Now, I certainly am fussy about particular sandwiches, like the aforementioned Reuben. Right. Uh, yeah. that it's often done wrong. Yes. Uh, sometimes they will leave off the, uh, the Thousand Island dressing. Or not give enough. Or not give enough. Sometimes, uh, there will be, uh, just sort of, uh, 
a cabbage salad that is not a sauerkraut, uh, also unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you can serve it on something other than rye bread. So there's all sorts of ways yes. to go to go wrong with a Reuben. But if you just think about a Reuben in which you've put the Thousand Island on the bread and then Swiss on that, that is like a paradigmatic example of a cheese sealing away the condiment. And so the Thousand Island, it doesn't matter how much you have on it because it never touches the pastrami. Well, I'm, right? I'm glad we got back to the, the core point of this segment. Right. Yes. No, it's, it's, but, but Reuben is such a great and classic example of how a sandwich that is theoretically bulletproof can still be done wrong. You know, even if you've got all the ingredients right, you assemble it in the wrong architecture and you screwed up the sandwich. Right. Well, a, a Reuben, I find, is, is done wrong like uh, at least uh, 60% of the time. Yeah, and then, then again, this is why I am amazed that it's like, you know, um, freaking, you know, Iranian nuclear data to, to get a sandwich out of people, uh, correctly. It, it's, it seems like it should be nationally known how to make a damn sandwich, and yet it is not. The Reuben, by the way, uh, created in Omaha, Nebraska. A lot of people don't know that. And was it named after someone named Reuben? It was named after a hotel named Reuben. Okay. Um, no, no, so- it wasn't. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was in the Blackstone Hotel in, Nebraska, so it must have been named after someone named Reuben. Uh, I believe it was the guy that ran the poker game. Right. Yes. Well, My you, apologies. You can, like, slip an extra ace into a badly made Reuben. Exactly. Um, but don't get the playing card between the condiment and the cheese. Is that right, what we're saying? Right, because... No, between the condiment everything. and the meat. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't get the playing card between the condiment and the meat. You can put the condiment... If you put the playing card between the condiment and the cheese, you know, you're at least halfway there. So, the, the vehemence with which you uh, typed this topic into our list suggested that you recently had a bad experience but what drove you finally over the line and are you willing to name the name of the restaurant that did this to you it's uh, it's my own fault because every now and again you find yourself in a in a strange city with a very limited amount of time to do anything um and you wind up going to subway and it's not you know the, these the the individual people who make your sandwich there they're working for minimum wage they hate their lives there, nothing they do, uh, can make up for the fact that they have to work at Subway for a living. So I don't want to make this sound like I'm angry at them. I'm angry at the company Subway for calling them sandwich artists, which they plainly are not. And I'm angry at the company Subway for as long as they're forcing people to make sandwiches to a senseless rote system. Why not make it the senseless rote system that actually makes a sandwich correctly? So I think that was probably the trigger so was you, just the notion like that there is a multi-million a dollar corporation that exists solely to make sandwiches and does it wrong. Uh, that may have been what uh, drove me bananas. Although it, it could have been any of your sandwich chains. None of them do it right. Right. Well, Subway in particular uh, deserves our opprobrium because uh, they took over the sandwich landscape. When they first introduced their uh, franchises, they made really great sandwiches full of stuff that they uh, attracted people and got them to switch to... Because until then, there was, like, usually... There were kind of local sandwich, uh, submarine sandwich chains, uh, mm-hmm. like here in Toronto, Mr. Sub, for example. And then right. Subway came into market after market, deliberately creating fabulous sandwiches that they couldn't continue to afford to make. And then once they took over all the market share, they clawed all of the ingredients and stuff out of the sandwiches. So yeah. if you're go- to go back in time to the uh, origin of the Subway franchise, uh, you would find much better sandwiches than, than you get there today. So, you know, perhaps uh, the memo from corporate is just to give you something else to be disappointed with. It's like, make sure that you put the condiment and the cheese together so that Ken will be distracted from the fact that the sandwich doesn't the, have the as much sandwich in it. is actually not very good either. Yeah. There used to be, um, I forget what it was called. There used to be a place, maybe it was called Brooklyn Sandwich or something like that. They used to be pretty good. And they, they did my favorite, uh, sandwich, which is the half corned beef, half pastrami, which is again, something that you'd think would happen more often because it's the perfect sandwich, but it doesn't weirdly. Um, you can, you can ask for it and then they stare at you right. with their tiny little dead rat it eyes. It just doesn't have a, a, a name like the Reuben to, to hang right. on. You could call it the Habsy. But, uh, but they used to do one and, and they were another one of the people that I think got knocked out. And, and Quiznos, of course, tried to take on Subway and overexpanded and died from their own, uh, foolishness. Right. Well, their uh, selling point was it's toasted, but it turns out that other chains could then also toast. Yes. It. They will now toast things at Subway for you if you yes. ask. Or if they ask sometimes. The, and the, of course, the other problem with sandwiches is that you wind up, uh, if you've eaten sandwiches in Los Angeles or California in general, uh, then you go back to the Midwest and you try and eat sandwiches. 
you have to sort of recalibrate your sandwich preferences because all the produce is terrible again. Right. And that, and that's, and that's a real ruiner because if you have expected, because a sandwich, as I mentioned, is a holistic creation. It's a balance of things. And so when you're making a sandwich, um, if the produce has a certain flavor profile, you want to lean on that. And then if you go back to Illinois to pick a state at random and it doesn't, then you're, then you might as well just go back and have something like a Reuben or a half pastrami, half corned beef where there's no vegetables anyway. So just, you know, keep, keep going on through your life. Well, your Midwesternness may explain why you just, it is just taken as red in, in your sandwich philosophy that it is a meat sandwich. Uh, the sandwich was born, uh, meat between bread when the Earl of Sandwich needed to, uh, uh, do something, uh, food wise uh, while playing cards. Another place where there was not abundant pr- produce. Right. Yeah. So he demanded meat between bread, and that's the sort of origin of the of the sandwich there. Another sandwich that you uh, get away with putting the, the, the cheese next to the bread is, uh, a, like I mentioned, a grilled sandwich. But that can also be like a Cuban, where you have to melt the cheese with the heat of the of the pan, so the cheese has to physically be somewhere to heat to, to melt. So you can get away with putting uh, the cheese on top in a Cuban. And again, the Cuban uh, uses that bright yellow mustard and... That trick then is put it underneath cheese, not on top of the cheese, dummy. Right. Uh, well, I guess we uh, did manage to talk about uh, the sandwich architecture for uh, long enough that we can save uh, my food rants uh, for perhaps another segment. And so uh, next we have a commercial. We have the cheese, the condiment, the meat, and then our next segment. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. That's Time Incorporated changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. And uh, now we come to a request uh, from Patreon backer uh, John Kingdon, and he wants to know the following. Inspired by a recent visit to the Field Museum, what really happened with the man-eating lions of Zavo in 1898, and what terrible secret caused Kent to arrange for their remains to be publicly displayed in his own city of Chicago? Uh, Kent, uh, that is a, a multi-part, multi-clause sentence, so grab a clause and start unpacking. All right. Um, I guess for people who are not Oh, fate with your great man-eaters of history, we should begin with the actual story of the man-eating lions of Savo, so that people are all on the same page and they know how badass and boss these lions were. Yes. Right? These were the most super murdery lions in history. They were the certainly the super murderiest ones ever to be given cool names by us by a screenwriter a hundred years after the fact. And so these two lions predated upon the workers building the uh, railway bridge over the Savo River in Kenya. It was going from Uganda to uh, Mombasa in Kenya, and they needed to build this bridge, and there was a great deal of problem with the bridge because, not least, the the workers were uh, unhappy being dragged up into the Kenyan uplands to build a railway bridge. They were African and Indian workers, and some British person had told them to build a bridge, and they, they didn't like that. And so they had to send out a new British person, Lieutenant Colonel John Henry Patterson, to get the bridge back on schedule. 
And he put down a series of mutinies and, you know, explained that no one was getting out of the Savo um, until the bridge got built. And then he had to deal with the fact that perhaps no one was getting out of the Savo because lions began attacking the workers' camps. And uh, it happened over a period of about nine months from uh, March to December. The lions began to take down individual workers and then jump into the camps. And in one particularly exciting uh, attack, entered the camp hospital and feasted amongst the wounded from previous lion attacks and the wounded from other industrial accidents while building a railway. And at one point they put up a fake hospital full of blood to draw the lions out. And while they were watching that, the lions attacked a different uh, barracks and then ate more people. Uh, they seem to have a preternatural cunning or certainly a more preternatural cutting than one guy was able to stop. So uh, December 1st, Patterson sets up a uh, railway car device that has the doors hinged at both ends. The goal being to um, uh, shut uh, the, the lions in the trap and a lion goes into it. The doors shut. They fire into the, um, into the railway car gauntlet style. And the only bullet that hits anything hits the latch of the trap. The lion goes out the other side. So he finally is building a um, a firing platform up in the top of a tree, although keeping in mind the lions have pulled people out of 15-foot trees before. This is not the safe space that it might be. Uh, He's got a donkey at the bottom. The lion comes up and he shoots the lion from the tree. Then uh, that's December 9th. Then on December 28th, he again attempts to ambush uh, the second lion. The second lion uh, does get ambushed, but he doesn't kill it, so he has to follow its blood trail into the jungle. The lion attacks him, of course, doubling back on its own blood trail. He manages at the last minute to fire the last of his six bullets into the lion, and it dies. Uh, the lions at that time were about 500 pounds. They were nine and a half feet long. They were enormous lions. And, and they were maneless? They were maneless. So which they had is a chip on their f- shoulder. Famous about them. They, they, had, um, uh, they were sick of being made fun of by other lions, perhaps. And they, he wound up, um, uh, making them into floor rugs. And I, I think it was one of his, uh, family members that eventually, uh, sold the lions to the Chicago Field Museum. And they took the floor rugs and re-lioned them. Yes. And they required a bit of refurbishing because they'd been walked on for right. a quarter century. And so they, uh, they wound up being, uh, much smaller in their reconstructed state because obviously, he hadn't saved all the fur to make the the rug out of. So if you see the lions in the field museum, which you should, cause it's magnificent, they're about two thirds of the size that they were in life. So this is, if you imagine that you're standing, uh, lions in museum are farther than they appear than they appear, I guess is, is what we know about those lions. And so the, uh, uh, one of the lions, um, was, uh, missing a tooth. He'd probably been kicked by a Buffalo. And so, uh, that was one of the theories that maybe that's why the lion attacked people and, and ate them was because he was missing a tooth and couldn't attack uh, hard targets. Another but theory, that's also an argument by the lion denialists who said that they couldn't possibly have eaten as many people as the historical account says they did. Yeah, the um, the, the Patterson eventually says that they killed 135 people in his uh, book on the topic. Some people have gone back to his original journals and counted up the people that he listed in his journal as, as having gone missing. His journals seem to list about 30 people who were killed, but again... Which is still way off the charts way off the for charts. historically documented uh, killer lions. Yes. And uh, these particular uh, buzzkill bobs have been perhaps given a facer by the fact that they have now very recently gone and studied the isotopic signature analysis of Delta 13 carbon, I think is what that is. It's something magic that shows up in your um, uh, hair keratin. And depending on whether or not you um, uh, you eat animals or people, your Delta 13 C turns up different. And so they measured the, uh, the amount of that stuff in lions that had eaten normal things, you know, gazelles and whatnot. And then they measured these lions. And their assumption is that in the last three months, which is how long this stuff stays in your hair, they had eaten 10 and 25 humans apiece, which means that since they attacked over a nine month period that they ate perhaps 30 and 
90 humans apiece, which adds to, hey, guess what? Just about 135. Plus, of course, we're not counting the people that got killed by the lions, but not eaten because people kept showing up with shotguns to drive them away. So uh, the lions killed and ate a lot of people, and they may have killed and ate a whole lot of people. But either way, they are badass boss lions and should not be mocked by killjoy scientists. So now your uh, intervention in the time stream, first of all, I assume that you uh, are responsible for removing all of the letters that they wrote claiming to be the Zodiac Killer. Yes, yes. Um, that that was just uh, them being uh, goofy, and it, it, it sort of lowers the tone of the whole thing, I think. It, it just opens up too many questions. Right, yeah. Um, so did you actually go back to Zavo during the... Uh, the time of this mammoth lion predation, or were you just involved in getting the rugs to the field museum? Um, I had a number of involvements in this case. Uh, the first one is that I, I wound up in Savo because uh, Henry Livingston, you know, good old Dr. Livingston, I presume, uh, ran into two man-eating lions in 1858 that were entirely destitute of mane and that one of them had teeth that were mere stumps while the others were white, perfect teeth. So Livingston ran into two man-eating lions without manes, one with messed up teeth. The uh, possibility of time-traveling lions uh, consumed me <laughs> much as a lion might. <laughs> now, I take it that you made sure that all residue from Reuben sandwiches was uh, off of you before you went yes, and, and started messing at with At no lions. point. And kids... It, time machine or no time machine, do not slather yourself with Thousand Island dressing before going lion hunting. It doesn't end well. Right, because lions are very particular. They, they are. They do not want the human uh, next to the cheese. They want the human next to the condiment. Right, yeah. So if you wrap yourself in provolone, that might do it. Um, but I don't recommend it either. Uh, so it was figuring out if there was time-traveling lions or merely a time gate somewhere in Africa that got me, you know, wandering around in there. And uh, it wound up, uh, there is a, um, a lava flow in the in the uh, Savo Plain. It's about a 200-year-old lava flow. It's called the Shatani Lava Flow. And let's just say that before I got there, there was no lava flow. So uh, we had to shut down the time gate so that the lions would um, stop going back and forth through it and killing people. That is an extra problem to have because you yes. can't even count the number of people they kill if they're going through a time gate. Right. So d did the time gate give them their eerie intelligence i believe that going through a time uh, gate a tri repeated tri time travel as we know is very closely uh, uh correlated with above average uh intelligence and savage good looks and i think yeah. that uh the lions showed it both improves of those your things. memory as well it I does think. it does it can anyway i mean obviously you have to remember is that so a thing the lions that happened? remembered that there were a bunch of people they had or is that a thing that didn't happen but i didn't make it happen is why it didn't happen so there's that but yes um so the uh so the the lions going back and forth through the time gate did in fact make them super smart and super uh cool and that is why they had to be kept in control and it also solves the question of what happened to the other third of the lions um they were taken away to be studied by time incorporated um the um uh, there is a isotopic signature it's not delta 13c and it's not nitro nitrogen 15 but there's something in your in your hair that tells you how many times you've time traveled, and they had to take that and uh, study it uh, for for these lions. So tachyon residue, right. probably, if I had to guess, which I do. And so is, is that why you uh, made sure that the pelts wound up at the field museum? Absolutely, because you have to keep an eye on these things. Because once people can get tachyon residue out of lion pelts, then first of all, it's bad for the lion population. But second of all, it means I don't get to look at awesome man-eating lions every time I go to the field museum, which I wanted to do anyway. Right. So is that the uh, extent of your involvement? That's the extent of my involvement in this particular case. Although I did run across Patterson at a later time because he was involved in the um, uh, mysterious death of the husband of his mistress. And when, oh, weird. when you're out walking around in Kenya with a rifle and the husband of your mistress is mysteriously shot, it turns out a lot of people blame you. <laughs> right. And really, it was a lion coming for vengeance with a gun. through the time it gate and had a, and a, a lion. Gun and... It's your worst nightmare, a lion with a gun. Exactly. The uh, It was uh, Baron Blith, uh, his, his son, Audley James Blith, who committed suicide in 1908, 
while <laughs> near uh, John Henry Patterson. And suicide is, of course, the polite way to put it, because no one wants to just say that a guy who has killed the Lions of Savo is a murderer because he's standing right there with a rifle. But it did mean <laughs> that he didn't get to go back. And he into might be thinking, you resemble a lion. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like lion talk to me. Yeah. Yeah. So he wound up um, uh, going off to uh, Palestine and uh, leading the uh, Zion Mule Transport Corps at Gallipoli and the Jewish Legion in Palestine in 1917 and 1918. So he wound up uh, doing a lot of other things and a lot of other historically contingent times and and places, uh, probably meeting up with... So he shot lions, but not just lions. No, he also shot Turks. (laughs) But fewer of the Turks had eaten people. I, I want to make that clear. I don't think very many of the Turks had eaten people at all that he shot. Uh, well, one, yeah, one would hope not. Yes. Uh, well, I think uh, that uh, more than adequately answers uh, John King's question, and I think more than adequately brings us to the end of our podcast year. This is the last episode that we'll drop during uh, 2016. We're going to have a little break, and then we'll be back with a new episode on January 6th. So until then, uh, dear listeners... Uh, enjoy whatever holiday you choose to uh, celebrate uh, at this time of year, whatever uh, cookies you choose to ingest or uh, festive activities or family time. And uh, we're going to go off and, uh, Ken, you're going to have Christmas and I'm going to have Atheist Christmas, which is the same as regular Christmas, except has more cookies in it. And uh, we'll be back. Unless church. Unless, yes. Well, that that's what you do when you're not at church. You yes, right. More because time you eat for cookies. cookies. It's what I do when I'm not at church, certainly. Yes. So if there is a 2017, uh, we'll be back in it on January 6th. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such walkers of the mean streets as... Alexander Zimmerman. Andrew Jones. Ben Dilworth. Ryan Mannix. And Christopher Kelly. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com backslash user backslash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>